back to Cyberology, Dakota State University's podcast about all things cyber and technology. I'm Jen Burris, and I have a guest co-host back again today, Jenna Martin. I must have done good the last time since I came back. (laughs) (laughs) And our expert guest today is Dr. Andrew Sadoff. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for the invite. This is my first time guesting on a podcast. Longtime listener. <laughs> I listen to podcasts about every single day, but the first time being a guest. So about myself, um, I have always loved science. I went to St. Olaf College and got my BA in biology. My junior year at St. Olaf, I kind of had a, a shift of what I wanted to do. I, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. My dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. But then, you know, I kind of shifted it. I realized it wasn't for me. I guess that's a a story for another podcast. Um, But uh, I went went off. I graduated. I I took a gap year and taught English in China at East China Normal University in Shanghai. And I realized that I really enjoyed teaching. Something just clicked in my head. College was the best time of my life. I like science. I like teaching. I can stay in college forever if I become a <laughs> professor. So after China, I, I came back to the U.S. and got my Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota in plant pathology. I got my Ph.D. in spring 2019. And in fall 2019, I, I came to DSU to teach science. And I've been here three years. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about microbiology and biology. Jenna, that's a trap question right there. (laughs) A very broad question. I know, right? You could get me talking for about 50 minutes on that, fall into my professor roots. I'll I'll keep it it narrow to just, let's say, plant pathology and microbiology. So plants get sick too. Some people don't realize that. Plants get diseased just like us, and they face some of the same microbes that we do. They get sick with viruses, bacterial infections, and especially fungal infections. My job as a a plant pathologist is to try to cure these these plants. Um, So anyway, I'm I'm a plant nerd and a fungi nerd too, and I love it. It's become a bit more mainstream. So like people are spending time geeking out over their houseplants and taking care of them, and that's, that's what I like to do too. Um, fungi have also become a lot more mainstream. You see the little uh, red cap mushrooms with the white spots, the Mario <laughs> mushrooms. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Amanita muscarina, that's the scientific name for those. The fly agaric mushroom. So you, you grind those, is why it's called fly agaric. You grind it up, you mix it with milk, and it kills flies. It's it's a fly wow. poison. Yeah, I had no yeah, idea. yeah. But anyway, uh, if if you're interested, my call to action: if you're interested in fungi, watch Fantastic Fungi on Netflix. It's the best time lapse photography, and you learn a lot about huh. mushrooms. Interesting. Yeah. Have to check that out. So, do you take your plants for a walk? Then have you gotten a plant stroller and you cruise up and down? I don't because they like to stay (laughs) inside. They're indoor plants only, just like indoor pets. You don't you don't take your indoor pets outside. I do I do geek out about um, like the fertilizers and the sunlight and the the number one key for houseplants, don't overwater them. That's my problem. I'm good at killing plants. Don't be a helicopter parent. (laughs) Cyberology. 
So it sounds like you did kind of follow in your parents' footsteps a little bit because you care for the viruses and all the, and you study all those things, but just in plant life instead of humans, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great insight, Jen. That's why I tell my students too. A lot, a lot of my students that I work with are pre-health students too. And mm-hmm. they're like, why, why are you messing around with plants? It's the same thing. You're, you're diagnosing diseases. You're, you're figuring out the best treatments for patients. And in this case, your patients are your plants. Yeah. <laughs> How do you diagnose a, di- a disease that a plant might have? What, like, Sure. So I, I, use, I use technology to do this. Okay. Um, so a lot of my uh, diagnoses are DNA-based. Um, so I try to grow out the microbe from the plant that's making the plant sick. I culture it, and then I extract DNA from that microbe, that fungus, that bacteria. I sequence it, figure out all of the base pairs in uh, the DNA of that microbe, and then I can look it up in a database and see what it is. Hmm. And then it's almost like personalized medicine, right? And then you can, you can figure out the exact treatment for that disease. That's crazy. Yeah. How long does a process like that take? That's also another great question. It can take a whole summer to do. <laughs> uh, so that process is the technical name for that is Koch's postulates. It's it's been around um, since the 1850s. Robert Koch uh, discovered this process of trying to isolate a, a pure culture. That's what it's called of a pathogen from an infected host, and then reinfecting that host and seeing if the same symptoms develop. Um, mm-hmm. It's been modified, you know, with, with with technology and some of those DNA-based techniques I was talking about. But yeah, it, it can it can take a whole summer um, to do that, and that's what my students did. Um, their first summer of research here in 2020, they carried out Koch's postulates for a new disease that we found in uh, South Dakota called the Phanomyces. Mm-hmm. Tell us how the technology has evolved over the years. So, in molecular biology, I'd say there's probably four big advances, um, recombinant DNA technology, PCR, polymerase chain reaction. Um, The two I'm going to talk about are gene editing and DNA sequencing. So you you may have remembered that human genome project, right? In in the early 2000s, the goal was to sequence the genome, so like all of the DNA in one human. DNA sequencing has advanced so much since then. In 2001, the cost to sequence one human genome, $95 million. In 2021, the cost, $454 to sequence one human genome. Yeah. That's wild. The technology has advanced so much. Um, There's multiple generations of DNA sequencing machines um, so the next generation sequencing machines are massively parallel. That's what's caused those sequencing costs to uh, drop so much um, because you can run a bunch of reactions at the same time. And now there's third generation DNA sequencers, uh, nanopore sequencers. That's my next thing I want to buy for my lab at DSU. Um, you can get your own portable DNA sequencing machine for $1,500 and you can sequence your DNA. Wow, that yeah. seems reasonable, actually. It's reasonable, yeah. It's, it's extremely reasonable. And you just, it's, it's a tiny little thing about less than an iPhone, the size mm-hmm. of these new DNA sequencers. And you plug them into your USB port of your computer, uh, and you can do, like, DNA sequencing out in the field if you're a field biologist. Wow. 
And what kind of things can you do with that information that you gather after you DNA sequence something? Yeah, well, you can classify it. Um, so there's like barcode sequences. Um, so you don't have to rely on morphology, how things look to figure out what they are. You can just look at the barcode DNA sequence, personalized medicine, right? Um, so you can check if a person has a mutated allele um, and you could predict uh, the likelihood of developing a, a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, that technology, though, is, is still in its infancy. Um, so we're, we're good for a, a few kind of simpler diseases, but the complex diseases that involve multiple genes and the environment is, mm-hmm. is still really hard to predict just from DNA sequence data okay. alone. When you pick a project, how do you go about starting with it? Like you're, you're researching a particular group of, of whatnot. How do you start the research process? It starts with excitement. Research is a lot of work and a lot of time. So I, I need to be excited about the project before I start it. And I work a lot here with students at, at DSU. And if I'm not excited about the project, I'm going to have a hard time selling it to my students. Um, so like the first project involved a lot of soil sampling. If I wasn't excited about trying to find a phantomyces eutechis, that's that alfalfa pathogen in, in South Dakota for the first time, my students would have hated going out uh, to 40-some fields and 16 counties doing soil sampling all mm-hmm. summer. Um, but, you know, like I tried to build the excitement in them, and they get a taste of research. And research is addictive. It's addictive because you're finding out knowledge that no one else in the world knows. So it's a big, juicy secret that no (laughs) one else knows, and it makes for a great story. You you know that, Jen. The secrets, the, the exclusive information makes great stories. And then once they get this taste of research... A lot of times the students stick around and they want to keep doing more research and, and answering more of their questions. Um, so most of my students I've been working with for, for two years, um, one is coming back this summer to research with me just for fun. Uh, it's kind of, you know, a, a volunteer job because he still has some questions he, he wants uh, answered. How do you kind of go about choosing your topic of research? How do you you know, look at everything and go, this is what we want to look at, or this is what we want to start with? That question would have stumped me in graduate school. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought I wasn't very good at asking the right the right questions. And that just comes with experience, a little of experience and trying to fight that imposter syndrome a mm-hmm. little bit. Like, you, you know this stuff, you're an expert, you know how to ask the right questions. Um, but in reality, the projects kind of flow into each other. So like after we found aphanomyces, that pathogen, that alfalfa pathogen all over the place in South Dakota, the next obvious question was, okay, how do we treat this disease, right? Can we use chemical treatments? Can we use fungicides to defeat aphanomyces? Is, are some individual plants more resistant than others? Can we use genetics? And then after that, um, we realized that playing around with those fungicides and using those fungicides, 
they're, they're toxic. They're not environmentally friendly, a, a, lot, a lot of the fungicides that we use. So is there, is there a more green approach? And that's what we started to investigate this spring with biocontrols. Um, so that's using the pathogens like natural competitor to defeat it. It's like causing microbes to, to fight each other and compete with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's cool stuff. So that's what we're going to start investigating this summer. And sometimes, too, to answer that question, like I said before, research is a lot of work. Um, so is there an easier approach? That's, some, that's, one, that's one of my questions I, I like to ask. So we've spent summers, like I said before, doing Koch's postulates. It takes a long time to prove that a microbe causes a disease and, and doing these DNA diagnoses. Um, it, it took a long time for us because we were trying to get the pathogen out of the soil, bait it out and infect plants, to grow it in pure cultures and do all those steps. Well, an idea I had is we could potentially use technology to make this much more efficient. Um, so we have a qPCR machine, so that'll allow us to do like the work that we've done in a summer mm-hmm. in a few days by directly extracting the DNA out of the soil and uh, doing disease diagnosis that way. So that cuts out like a lot of steps then. It does. It does. It makes it much more efficient. So like the whole idea I had was we could just go out into to fields, um, extract DNA from the soil that we collect. And then based on that DNA evidence, we could advise farmers the best seeds to plant given their fields, uh, microbial composition. And they would get that data back within a few days um, so they could actually use it to make uh, informed decisions on what they plant. They meaning the farmer? The, the farmer. farmer gets yeah, that. the grower. So, yep. So do you just walk up to the farmhouse, knock on the door and say, hey, we would like to, we're with Dakota State University, like to do some research in your field. Is that how you guys approach or? Uh, essentially, that's our approach. We do it over the phone though. Oh, do you have um, So and- yeah, so I, I've worked with Mustang Seeds my first two years here and uh, they've been generous enough to give us a grower list. Oh, that's um, cool. So we, we contact uh, the growers over the phone and we explain mm-hmm. the project and we, we ask if they can sample their fields. And, and most of the times, uh, the, the growers are really interested in yep. research. And it's what, it doesn't cost them anything. It's, yep. it's free, you know? Yep. Um, so it's, it's, it's been a good approach. And we always contact them after the studies are done to, to share our results. Well, that's interesting. I, I think it's interesting anyway. Oh, so yeah. Too. yeah. Yeah. Um, I wondered how that worked. What's the feedback been like from growers that you've worked on projects with? Yeah, so when we uh, call them back and, and give them the results, uh, I have the students uh, ask them if they want to like participate in future projects. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gotten one no. Um, so yeah, so <laughs> huh. most people are most people are excited to continue with, with research. I think people are listening to some of our results and, and taking them seriously, at least on the local level. Um, so my first summer of research here was in 2020. In 2021, we've already saw a shift in uh, the alfalfa seeds uh, that Mustang Seeds is selling and the growers are buying uh, to kind of that backs our our research. Um, So more disease-resistant seeds Mm -hmm. uh, for the diseases that are in the soil in in Lake County and eastern South Dakota. If they don't take care of that alfalfa field, will they just not have a crop? Is that what will end up happening if it is diseased enough? Yeah, yeah. So different diseases, they just rot the seed before it even germinates. Yep. So yeah, they'll uh, complete loss. Alfalfa two is a, a perennial. Um, so 
the seed costs a lot because it comes back every year, it right? Comes I was back, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what perennial means. I had to yep, double yep. check. <laughs> yep. So you can get me about five years with an alfalfa field before you have to tear it up and then replant. Before you, before you rotate. Oh, before you rotate it, sure. Rotate. Um, it, it puts a lot of nitrogen back into the soil. Um, mm-hmm. so it fertilizes. So it's good. Its soil. It's, it's a, a good very pl- good crop to grow. Yep, yeah. good plant to have. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Doing this research. It can not only fix problems, but improve yields and things like that too. Is that correct? Yeah, that that's one of the motivations for my research. Sometimes people ask me, why do I research? Well, my answer is always to feed the world because populations are skyrocketing. Um, by 2050, there'll be 9.9 billion people in the world. And we need to increase yields and food production by 60% to feed all of those people. So it's a big challenge ahead of everyone. Um, But little things like planting the right seed and reducing losses to diseases add up. Like those things make agriculture more efficient Mm -hmm. to hopefully reach those lofty goals by 2050. What kind of advice do you give to your students as they start working on research projects? I believe it's called the 3% rule. So try to get 3% better or, or done each day. So essentially what that means is try to get a little bit accomplished each day, and that adds up over time. So I, I value persistence a lot in the lab, um, coming in every day, trying your hardest for the hours you're in here, and then setting it down so you don't burn out. So just working on a little bit each day, um, the projects and adds up over time. What's your favorite thing about biology? I like to use my hands. And biology is a very hands-on discipline. That may, may surprise people, but lab work is a lot of, of using your hands and, and, and using technology, the newest technology. So I was communicating with a student over the summer Um, She was thinking of coming to to DSU to do some research. And the first day she was on campus, I I showed her the lab, and she was just taken away by the lab. She did uh, the panoramic shot with her cell phone, like, this is a lab. It's filled with technology, and you get to actually use that technology at at Dakota State University. Another thing, too, is um, so when I was teaching English in China, a lot of the, the students I worked with were graduate students, and these graduate students were botany or plant science graduate students. Mm-hmm. And the main reason why I was in China to teach English was to prepare these students for going to conferences and, and speaking English at the conferences and sharing their research results. So I got to learn a lot about their research projects. And the one thing that was shocking to me at the time was a lot of these master's research projects didn't involve using any equipment. Um, So these students didn't know how to use their hands. They didn't know how to use all the machines in the lab because they never had a chance to use them. There wasn't wasn't enough machines, so most of their projects were, like, literature-based. So if these students, like, came to a, a lab in the U.S., they would be totally lost because they don't know how to use their hands at all. I'm glad you brought China up. Do you know Chinese then? I don't know don't you Chinese really? at all. No. <laughs> so you went over there not knowing Chinese, but you were teaching them English. Yeah, it was a totally ah. immersive experience. 
That's right? crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I just yeah. figured you knew Chinese. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I tried to learn. I, I'm, I'm decent with languages. Um, so I speak a little bit of Norwegian. I studied mm-hmm. abroad in, in Norway, and that was uh, it's a language I learned at St. Olaf College. But I couldn't pick up Chinese because it was too tonal, yeah. and they had no idea what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you function somewhere where you don't speak the language for like a year? Yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. Do you use translator apps and stuff? Translator to... apps, they were still, so I, I went there in 2013 and the translator apps weren't as good yeah. in, in 2013. Uh, but no, we were in Shanghai, so that's a fairly international city. And we got by, relied on some students to, <laughs> to, to, to translate for us, but we got by. It's, it's international enough. If it were more of a, a rural community, I think it would have been a challenge. Uh, tell me what kind of future do you see uh, for biology? Where do you see it moving in, in the next five, ten years? Yeah, I, I, I hope it moves in the direction of uh, attracting some more pre-health students mm-hmm. here. That's, that's, that's most of the students that at least I have in my biology classes. They want to go on to be PAs or dentists or doctors, right? I think biology might move in that pre-health direction, um, especially with like the new athletics complex here, um, getting closer to exercise science and making it possible to, you know, to have a biology and exercise science double major. So that's kind of how I, I kind of envision it going to pre-health uh, a little more in that direction, but still having research opportunities here. Um, we're involved with South Dakota EPSCoR and, you know, I, I have so much fun researching over the summer. I don't see myself quitting anytime soon with that. <laughs> so still still doing some of the alfalfa uh, plant health research. Do you have any other areas of interest in research outside of alfalfa? Or is that kind of just like where you want to stay focused for now? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not opposed to going in, in other directions. Uh, I was uh, on a, unfortunately, an aquaponics project that did not get funded. Um, so that's uh, growing crops um, using the fish waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we were going to convert our greenhouse into an aquaponics uh, facility. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm open. Uh, you know, I, I'm a plant pathologist by training. So obviously some of the research is going to involve microbes and, and, and plants. But yeah, I, I could move away from alfalfa if I saw a, a really good project that interests me. And you've mentioned a few times technology over the course of this. How do you keep up with all of the advances? I would say reading and conferences. I'm a bookworm. I like to read scientific papers. I, I like to know what, what's trending and what other scientists are doing. And, and I learned that type of information too by a, attending conferences. Um, so staying connected in, in the discipline and in the research area that I'm focused. Another way to increase tech, and in, that's not really answering your question, another way to in, increase tech in uh, DSU is by just being a willing learner. I like to learn new things. And if, if I see a machine like the QPCR machine, um, so that machine is, is a nice, big, shiny machine that's, that's in research labs everywhere. And we had an opportunity to purchase one. And I've just kind of thrown myself into learning all of the functions of this machine so I can share it with my students. And if they take a research position or they go to graduate school, they know exactly how to use this machine. 
Well, anything that you want to highlight about your program or the work that you do? One of the things that gets gets me really excited about the work that I do is to see students using technology in the lab. Um, so I had the opportunity to teach a couple weeks of honor science this semester, and these students hadn't been in the lab yet. Um, so they, they came into my lab to do some CRISPR gene editing. Um, so CRISPR is kind of like a molecular scissors, so it allows you to switch the bases of, of, of DNA, right? Um, so I'm sitting there in, in lab just preparing, and I overhear a student, uh, student that comes in, and he is super excited for lab. He comes in. He's obviously rehearsing the line in his head. He sits down at his lab group with, with his lab mates, and he kind of says, let's mess with nature. That's not his exact quote, though. It's a little less PC than, than that. <laughs> um, but he came in, and he was super excited to do science and, and use his hands and genetically modify his bacteria and, and you know, see if, what, see if he could put into action everything that we've been learning in lecture. Um, so things like that really motivate me. Well, thank you for being our guest today. Uh, I think we've learned a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Um, successful, I think. First podcast yes, in the book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you to Xander Morrison, our podcast producer. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. <laughs>